super excited for everybody who graduated. We know that this launches for us a season um, that is uh, during the summertime. We uh, have some folks who are staying around, some folks who, you know, you're, you live here in Tallahassee. Some of you guys just graduated and you're about to go home or about to go on to what's next or you're kind of in and out throughout the summer. But the summer is an opportunity for us to do a couple of things that we don't um, often get a chance to do. And one of those is we're going to just start walk, working through the book of Acts verse by verse. When we first started as a church, we started off by going through the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with what the book of Acts is, uh, essentially what it is, is it's the story of the early church. It's the story of the early church. This is Jesus died. Jesus rose back to life, showed up to lots of people like we talked about on Easter. And then all of a sudden, the apostles or the disciples who followed Jesus around, who frankly until that point had not really been a part of ministry, they had observed Jesus doing ministry, were giving nothing but the marching orders to say, go to the entire world and make disciples, go to the entire world and help people who have no belief to have belief and profess faith in Jesus. And oh, by the way, you have no experience, you have no Bible, you have no church history. In fact, you've never even been in ministry. You've seen people do ministry. So good luck. And what I love about the book of Acts is it's so simple. What would you do What would you do if all you had was the teachings of Jesus, the walking and talking with Jesus? You had some Old Testament stuff and some Old Testament knowledge, but all you had essentially was what you had experienced when you walk around with Jesus. And then he said, okay, I want you to take this to the ends of the entire earth. And you know what's the craziest part about the book of Acts to me? It worked. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something where you're thinking, okay, this legit has no shot to work. Um, <laughs> yesterday, I was at the beach with Jeff um, and William and a couple other people, and there was about, when we first got there, actually, um, we, we all got sunburned, but William and Jewel definitively got, get more sun time than any of us do on a normal basis. Um, they're those people that are still young, but still tan, which kind of makes you frustrated. Um, but so we put, um, <laughs> so I at some point realized that I'm putting on the same kind of suntan lotion as they are. I'm like, this is not going to work, you know? But then I put on, um, they made fun of me, but I put on 110 on my face because your boy has to look good. Okay. It worked. I'm just saying, you're welcome. But here's the thing. If you would have just taken like an idea of these 12 people who over and over and over denied Jesus oh, when, when he died, they over and over, when Jesus would give them a ministry opportunity, they would just fumble the ball. I mean, they were just almost a 0% success rate. To go and turn the world upside down was probably one of the most unlikely things that could have happened yet and still. We stand here or sit here today because of what they did. And before we actually even launch into the entire book, what I want to do this morning is give us basically a preface for how I want us to see, understand, and interpret the book of Acts. And what I mean by that is, in fact, if, if you're here and you're you know, going to check out and you're going to go back to your home church and you're never going to hear anything again, I just want to give us a lens to what I think we should view all of Christianity, all of life, and all of faith. Because one of the things that I've been convinced of is we, because of how we have seen the teachings of Jesus, because of how we've seen people live out the teachings of Jesus, because of what we've seen we've experienced with other churches, other Christians, I think we have extraordinarily dumbed down what it means to be a Christian. We've minimized the expectation. And we read a book like the book of Acts, and we think, oh my gosh, heroes, 
of faith. I mean, faith so strong it could stare a lion in the face and, and not flinch. You know, uh, faith so strong it could stand up to the entire Roman government. Faith so strong it could be killed. It could be crucified. Faith so strong that, you know, for Peter's sake, he could be hung upside down because he didn't want to be hung right side up because he thought, I just can't even be in the same ballpark as Jesus. We hear that kind of faith and we think, good grief. I have a difficult time talking about my faith in the cubicle at my work, let alone hung upside down on a cross. I mean, that's just, it's just dwarfing faith. But here's, here's where I think we go wrong. And this dovetails into what we talked about on Easter. When we think about faith, we think about faith in faith or hope in hope. It's this hope. It's this unprovable. It's this non, you know, evidence-based. It's this, I just hope it's true. I, I wish it's true. I was born being told it's true, and I think it probably is, and I went to a camp, and I had an experience, or I had a time in prayer, and I feel like probably it's true. But the truth is, that wasn't the early church's faith. So I want to, as we begin to launch into this, I just want to paint a picture of the preface of how I think we ought to view all of life, all of Scripture, and especially the book of Acts. But to do it, we're not going to go to the book of Acts. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about faith. Now, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you know a lot about Hebrews, by the way, Hebrews, there's a ton of debate around who, who wrote it. And the truth is, we don't know. So at least I'll be honest about that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is a verse that, especially if you've been around the church for a long time, um, you've probably heard. And if you have only been around the church for a little amount of time, you might have heard somebody talk about this. But somehow we can take um, what the writer of Hebrews, we'll call it Paul, we'll call it Paul or Barnabas, call it Apollos, call it whoever you want to. But whoever the writer of Hebrews is, they were writing to clarify what faith is. And oftentimes, instead of clarifying it, it makes it more vague and more mystical and more gray to us. So this is what he says. He says, now faith is, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And let me tell you why he said that. The church at this point, most scholars believe that when the book of Hebrews was written, the church for the very first time was facing persecution. Up until this point, probably, all of the people who were Christians could continue to meet in the Jewish synagogues. But as Christianity began to get a little bit of traction and gain some steam and gain some momentum, all of a sudden, they were facing persecution. All of a sudden, they weren't allowed to meet in the synagogues. All of a sudden, they were facing what they had faced at different points in times now to a more heightened, which was persecution in the church. And so he is writing to say, let me help you to have more faith. Let me help to push you to live out your faith in a dynamic way. Way. He says, now faith is the assurance of what's hoped for. In other words, faith is hoping assuredly. Or faith is the conviction of things not seen. And again, this is difficult, right? Because it almost seems by definition, what's hoped for doesn't have assurance behind it, or else it wouldn't be hoped for anymore. And things not seen don't come with conviction because I'm convinced once I have seen it. And so here's the question that we got to wrestle with when it comes to faith. When does hope for become confident for? When does hope for become assurance of? When does not seen become a deep felt conviction? 
And if we're being honest, if you're in here and you're kind of wrestling with faith around the periphery of Christianity, not really sure how, to, how you're going to wrestle with this idea of faith in Jesus and the Bible and God, isn't this the difficult part? That it seems like you just have to have this mystical assurance of what you hope to be true. You don't know if it's true. It's a, you know, it's, it's a 50-50 toss-up, but I'm just going to hope and I'm going to have assurance that I think it's true. Why? <laughs> because I hope it's true. Now, here's the good news. No one in the early church hoped that Jesus was the Son of God because of hope. They weren't assurant of it because they had not seen it. Here's the thing. They had faith that God was who he says he was, not because they hoped it to be true, but because of the evidence of the resurrection. And in the wake of the evidence of the resurrection, they saw this guy that they hung out with, that they walked around with, that they talked around with. They saw him brutally murdered on a cross. All of a sudden, he's in a tomb. He's been embalmed. Some people go to help and further embalm him. And all of a sudden, you know, Easter morning shows up and everybody says, he's risen. And no one says, indeed. And we talk about this every single Easter because no one said, indeed. Everybody said, where'd he go? In fact, who stole him? You guys stole him. The Jewish folks stole him. I mean, where? There's nobody. Because on Easter morning, again, nobody expected no body. Now here's the thing. What they believed was not we hope it to be true. What they believed was if a guy can rise from the dead, we're going to trust that what he says is true and we saw it. And the early church would say, and we are the eyewitnesses of it. And in other words, here's, here's what faith is. For a while, if you're working, and again, some of you are going to work at Starbucks and you're going to, you know, make seven fifteen an hour or whatever minimum wage is right now, you know, and you're, and you're killing it and good for you. And can I have a soy chai latte double mocha thing, you know, and, and, and people are going to order crazy stuff. But at some point, you're going to hope that you get a raise. Man, I hope I'm, I'm getting a raise. And in fact, if you're married, you're going to go and maybe you bring your, you know, your, 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 your spouse in. You know, I mean, let's just pray that God provides and we're hoping and we're hoping and we're hoping and hoping. You know when hope becomes assurance? When your boss comes in and says, you're getting a raise, you're getting a raise. Then you don't go home to your spouse. You don't say, guys, or, or you know, husband, wife, I wouldn't come home to Lindsay and say, Lindsay, guess what? I hope I'm getting a raise. What do you say? I'm getting a raise. This is so important. The reason you say it like that, though you don't have it at that point of things unseen, you have not seen your race, but here's what you believe. You believe that your boss, based on the evidence that the boss has created to this point, has the authority to give you a raise. You all of a sudden have confidence that you're going to get a raise. And they're here, they say in two weeks, you're going to get a raise. If you work for the state, right, in like six months, they're going to approve it, and you're finally going to get a raise. But you are going to get a raise. And you go home, we're going to get a raise. And you start, you know, deciding how you're going to spend your raise or save your raise or invest your raise. Why? Because the person who said it, you believe, has the authority to grant or to do what they said. Now, this was the faith of the early church. It was not we hope it to be true. It's that if we saw this guy rise from the dead, then we believe he actually has the authority to forgive our sins. We believe based on the evidence that he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we believe when he said that there is a new way, 
a new covenant that is not based, a new relationship that is not based on you earning your way, you moraling your way into my good graces, but simply by the fact that Jesus' death on the cross took the punishment for all of our sins. He said, man, we believe that if he rose from the dead, that he has the authority to forgive our sins. He says it's, it's the confidence it's the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. Then he takes a step back and he says, For by it, verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendations. Now, this is what he's about to go into. He's, he's going to go into this hall of faith, if, if you've ever read Hebrews 11. Where he just goes person after person after person after person. He talks about, you know, Enoch. And he talks about Abraham. And for some of us, we start hearing those names. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that story. I remember that story. For some of us, you hear that. And you're like, man, I have no clue about the Bible. Totally okay. Because he just, he basically broad strokes and goes through a ton of different people, a ton of different examples. That by faith, this person did this thing. By faith, this person did this thing. In other words, because this person believed and trusted God. Because they acted, because they believed God existed, because they believed God had made a promise to them, because they believed God had told them something to do, they went and they did the thing that God had told them to do. And he goes through this laundry list of people. And I love how he gets kind of close to the end. And you can tell um, whoever this writer is perhaps didn't, um, didn't plan this chapter out well. In fact, for me, if I ever write on like a chalkboard and I have like a long sentence to write, I'm the person who like starts off with huge letters, you know, and by the end you just kind of get this like little like scribble and they're kind of stacked on top of each other. It's funny because that's almost what he does at the end of the chapter. I mean, he just starts going on, on and on about Abraham, all these people. I want you to pick it up at the end of the chapter where he kind of just, I think, gets tired and says, good grief, I could go on for days about this. Verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me. In other words, I'm getting to the end of the chalkboard, so let me just summarize. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. So he just, in fact, he says prophets. Now, that, now that's like, that's like, Probably half of the Old Testament is the prophets, okay? So he's like, I'm just going to, you know, broad stroke the prophets. You get it. To a Jewish audience, they got it. He says, who through faith, in other words, these people had such a trust in God. These people had such a conviction that if God said it, I'm going to do it. If God said it, I'm going to do it. Now, all in the Old Testament, but if God said it, I'm going to do it. He said, who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, and they stopped the mouth of lions, they quenched the, the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, but be, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And that's the part that we love. We're like, oh my gosh, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stop a lion tomorrow, you know? Anybody want to go out into Wakulla and hunt some bears, you know? And we're just going to see if we can stop their mouths. And, you know, we're going to pray, God, would you do this, you know? And, and we want to have that kind of faith. He says, come on, let me, let me tell you some more realistic parts of faith too. Now, people, men and women of faith, he's saying, they have done this stuff. But let me give you the other side, that it's not uncostly. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. In other words, they thought this life wasn't the only life. They thought there was a better life ahead to come. That others suffered mocking, flogging, 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and ghosts, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the desert and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now, I love how he gives a realistic expectation. He says, I mean, there are people of faith. I mean, extraordinary faith. Trust in God. This faith that they said, I believe that God knows best, and I am going to trust God with everything. I believe that God knows best, and I'm going to trust God with everything. And so, God, you call me to, to you know, quench the, you know, fire, or God, you call me to, to go live in a cave, or God, you call me to stop a lion, or God, you call me to, this sounds terrible, but get, did he just say, did he just say sawed in half? Can I just go ahead and not volunteer for that boat, you know? I mean, that sounds, that sounds awful. But here's what he was trying to communicate. He's saying, come on, let's, I mean, let's just look at the Old Testament. He said, and he was speaking, by the way, to a primarily Jewish audience, which they knew all of these stories. I mean, they knew these stories plus more stories. They knew of the good stories. They knew of the bad stories. They knew of the ones where God would deliver, and they knew of the ones where people would be brutally destroyed. And he looked at him and said, come on. Every generation leading up to Jesus, there are men and women of extraordinary faith. Now, here, here's, what, here's what I think we're so guilty of. Is we see that and we think, man, that's a heroic faith. Like nothing we could do. But that's not what he's communicating. That's not what he's writing. He's saying there's tons of people who have done this before, tons of people who have been this before, tons of people who have lived with the abandonment towards and for God that they would go through anything. And it's not because they were crazy. It's because they actually trusted and believed in God. And I love what he says next because this is like the exclamation point on the point of what he's trying to make. Because again, Jewish audience talking about the Old Testament, he's saying, you know, God had promised these people. He had promised Abraham. He had promised you know, Noah. He had promised Moses. He had promised all these people these things, and they actually believed him. Verse 38, in all these... Though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. He says, and they didn't even get what they were promised. What they were promised was going to be for future generations. In other words, their faith was so strong, was so extraordinary, that they lived with total abandonment. God, whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. And they didn't even see the fulfillment of what God had promised, just trusting God that he was one day going to bring it to fruition, and I'm playing a part of the story. I'm playing a part of the story of redemption. He says they didn't even see it. They lived hoping for it. Continues in verse 40, says, Since God has provided something better for us, he says, they lived, they lived in a way, they lived in such a manner that they would be willing to do whatever for God. 
And they lived hoping that someday the promise would come true. And here's his point. We live in the wake of the aftermath of the fulfillment of that promise. We don't live hoping. We live in the wake of the event of the resurrection of Jesus. That they hoped for it. They didn't see it. They hoped for it, and they still live with that faith. And they hoped, and they hoped, and they hoped, and they wished, and they wished, and they wished, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they lived for God. But they never saw it. And he says, come on, come on. But we've seen it. We've seen it. We have assurance in what we hope for. We, are, we have a conviction about what we have not seen because what we did see is we saw a resurrected Jesus. I love Tim Keller's quote about that. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, or he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. In other words, in Christianity, nothing else matters. But he said, if he did rise from the dead, then literally nothing else matters. And these men and these women were either the eyewitnesses or the people who heard from the eyewitnesses or had been passed down, maybe a couple people, to the eyewitnesses of the event of the resurrection. And they were convinced And the writer was convinced of saying, these men and women lived such extraordinary faith and they didn't even see what we have seen. They lived hoping for the event that we live in the wake of and in the shadow of. In other words, this is is what's crazy. We should have more faith than they did. Because we don't live hoping for what we know we will never see. We live in the wake of the event that happened that was the fulfillment. Now, come on. You know that. I know that. <laughs> this, is like, this is like one group of people lives that a boss said, There's been, someday you're going to get a raise, someday you're going to get a raise, someday you're going to get a raise. And then they die and they never actually get the raise. But then you got another group of people who they said, and we got the raise. And now here we look with a bank account that has the funds that have seen the effect of the raise. How much more should we trust our boss that when he says he's going to give us a raise and he knows what's best? He says, come on, come on. How much more should we trust him? How much more should we live for him if his people who had not seen the promise did? How much more should we? And then it gets a little bit difficult at that point because that seems almost unfathomable. But again, I think that we've just kind of dumbed it down. He says that apart from us talking about them, they should not be made perfect. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, come on. So I, here's what you think. I just want you to imagine all of these men, all of these women, all of these men, all of these women that have gone before you, that have lived for God. I want you to think about the magnitude, all of the shoulders on whom we stand on of extraordinary faith. Faith that in the early church again stood up to Rome. Faith that at different times in Christianity would stand up to tyranny. Faith that in certain times of Christianity would would stand up to the tyranny that Christianity was posing. Faith that at some times people would go to translate the Bible because they saw how people were misusing the Bible, mistreating the Bible, leveraging the Bible, and didn't want everybody to know the Bible because if they did, they might not actually follow them. Their power, the struggles, the dynamics that men and women of faith 
had. In fact, the reason we have a Bible today is because there was a person who decided they were going to actually translate the Bible out of the ancient language into the modern language. Snuck Bibles, stole Bibles, translated the Bible. And he was burned alive for it. But I'll never forget, this is, gosh, four or five years ago at our church. I think four or five years ago. I remember giving a, sto- a sermon. And it was about the glory of God and it was about how nothing else matters. And how essentially... God's ultimate desire for us is for us to be in union and community with him and to glorify him with our lives. And that does not mean that we're going to be the healthiest, wealthiest, wisest people on planet earth. It might mean that we're that, but that doesn't guarantee it because his, his goal isn't for our safety. His goal is for his glory. And it should be our goal too. Because again, if he, if he rose from the dead, it's all that matters. And I remember giving this sermon and talking through this. And there was a couple that I knew then when we had become really close. They were in our community group. And they were wonderful people. She's actually, I think, just now finishing med school up in New York. And I remember about getting close, about maybe five minutes left in the sermon, I started to, to close and conclude, and I saw her kind of just run, you know, fast walking, crying out of the back of the sanctuary. And, and sometimes, by, honestly, when you're a pastor and that happens, you're like, all right, got him. You know, that was a good one. <laughs> I see you. I see you third row crying. All right, yeah. <laughs> but I remember talking afterwards, and, and her husband, actually, who I was also close friends with, he, he reached out to me and said, you know, I'd really love for you, you, know, you guys to talk and, and all that. And basically what he said, or what they came to tell me, is there was actually a book that was written about her dad who had gone into some of the tribal parts of South America and in trying to present the gospel and presenting the gospel was forced to dig his own grave and killed and thrown in the pit. Let me ask a question. If you're not a Christian, if you're kind of on the periphery of Christianity, wouldn't that change the way that you think about Christians? If you, I mean, if, if you saw that as the norm of faith. If you saw that as the regular, I mean, people so deeply believed this. They were so deeply convinced that Jesus had rose from the dead, that nothing else in life mattered. In fact, I take it back, everything else in life mattered because everything about their life screamed towards God's glory. That didn't mean they quit their jobs. That didn't mean they quit you know, their, their marriages. That didn't mean they quit anything. In fact, the opposite. They were the best at everything because everything that they did, they wanted to glorify God with it. They actually thought, I am going to be the best possible Starbucks mocha cappuccino person in the history of my Starbucks because I think that I have an opportunity to glorify God with this. Would that change? How we viewed faith in God and Jesus and Christianity. So he says, here's the key to it. Here's the key to it, by the way. It's not that I'm just going to decide to live boldly. 
Verse 2, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is the beautiful part of Christianity. This is the part that I am so in love with and so convinced of. That it's not our decision to all of a sudden live with extraordinary faith, crazy faith, wild faith, all of this faith. It's that we are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then I'm going to give everything in my life to him. And by the way, it's not that all of a sudden I'm just this wildly courageous person. It's the opposite. It's the fact that when I look at it, I just say, God, you know, Jesus, you are the only thing that matters. So I'm just going to fix my eyes on you. I'm not going to fix my eyes on everything else. I'm not going to fix my eyes on my circumstances. I'm not going to fix my eyes on what I'm, I'm doing in life or what I wish I was doing in life or who I wish I was with in life or I wish I was living in life. I am simply going to fix my eyes on Jesus. He is the author. He is the founder. He is the perfecter. He is the finisher of our faith. And I'm just going to fix my eyes on him because nothing else matters. And if he says to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm living the kind of faith that if he says run at the wall, I'm just praying that, that he opens up a hole, right? And my head doesn't just like hit the wall, but at the same time trusting God in my hole, my head hits, hits the wall, then like maybe you wanted to do something with that. I don't know. I mean, that sounds really dumb. I don't think that we should do that. That's probably bad stewardship. But nonetheless, like, like that's the kind of faith, right? It's this idea that Jesus, whatever you say, I'm going to do. And again, this is why I think this matters. Because this summer, as we read through the book of Acts, There is such a tendency to read what they did and think, oh my gosh, I wish we had that kind of faith. Men and women lived with that kind of faith before they saw the faithful one in bodily form whose name was Jesus. And yeah, we didn't walk and we didn't talk like Paul and Apollos and Barnabas. Yeah, we didn't, you know, get to hang out with Jesus like Peter. We weren't the stepbrother of Jesus like James. Half-brother, I guess. You know, different dads. <laughs> Some of you guys got that. <laughs> but, but, but here's the point. Here, here's what he's saying. That was never the baseline anyways. There's people who never even saw the promise, who live with faith that could tame a lion or be eaten by it, but said either way, God is faithful. He says, and we get to live in the wake of the cross, of the empty grave, and of the resurrection. And so, God, whatever you say, I just want us, if, if, in fact, if you're going to be here with us this summer, as we go through this, I don't want to view this as crazy. I want to view this as ordinary, as the expectation. I want to view it as we should live as people who who with all of the experience, with all of the church history, with all, I mean, everything that we have, I mean, shoot, the digital age, that we should be more than they were, more than they had, more than they did. I just want to, honestly, I want to recreate for us a new identity of how we view ourselves and how we view we live out our faith. I think that would radically change everything because I think that we have bought into a watered down, misconstrued, very uncourageous version of I hope it's true and I'm going to generally affiliate myself with Jesus and that's about it. And if it costs me anything, 
I really wasn't convinced of it anyways. Now again, I'm going to finish by saying this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, come on, wouldn't this just change how you view Christians? And if you are a Christian, don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to have that kind of faith? Here's the simplicity of it. It's not a decision to all of a sudden have extraordinary faith. It's you daily fixing your eyes, me daily fixing my eyes, us daily fixing our eyes on Jesus, spending time with him in prayer, spending time with him in his word, being in community with other folks who also have their their, their focus fixed on Jesus. And I think we'll start to live out of faith where someone goes, you know, to Africa or someone goes to, you know, uh, Belfast or someone goes to do, do a mission thing somewhere, shout out to CAF, you know, someone goes somewhere to do something, my man. <clears throat> and we don't see that as crazy. We're like, man, that wouldn't even make it into page four of the book of Acts, you know? That's just so, it's just normal. What if we had that kind of faith? That was the faith that changed the world. And that's the faith of the men and women who we look at and we stand on the shoulders of. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in and through us. God, I thank you for all of the people who are going to their next steps in life, who are going to their next places in life. That in the wake of, or in the shadow of a hundred different things that are going on and transitions that are happening in new jobs, new places, new cities, new friends, new groups, hopefully new churches, definitely new churches. God, wherever it is that they're, that they're going, you would give them extraordinary faith to simply focus on you. I pray as we spend our summer going through the book of Acts and learning about what the early church did with nothing but the teachings of you, Jesus, the knowledge of the Old Testament, in your Holy Spirit with the mission to go to every people group on planet Earth and teach them help them, love them, serve them with the good news of you, a Savior, who fulfilled his promise that you died for us so that we could be made one with you. God, I pray that we're so convinced. We aren't just hoping in hope or believing in faith, but we're convinced and we live in the shadow of of the cross and the resurrection. And because you did that, you have the authority to say whatever you want with all of our lives. We just simply want to focus on you and go wherever it is that you would have us to go. Do whatever it is that you would have us to do. God, I pray that you would change the world as you change our identity and our expectation of what it means to live a life of faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.